I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and this is Writers on Writing. Writers on Writing focuses on the art, craft, and business of writing. My guest today is memoirist Isaac Fitzgerald, author of Dirtbag, Massachusetts, A Confessional. Today we talked about the first line of his memoir and why he knew it would be a great first line. Endings, outlining, and much more. If you like what you hear today and it helps you in any way with your own writing, consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Every little bit, a dollar here, a dollar there, helps Marie and me to continue producing the show. Visit patreon.com slash writers on writing. Now for the show. I'm so happy to talk with you, Isaac. I don't remember exactly when I heard about um, Dirtbag Massachusetts, a confessional, but as soon as it came in or wherever I saw it, I had to talk with you about this book. And I would just love to start with hearing you talk about how it came about, how the idea for this memoir, which is a confessional, how it came about. Um, Well, one, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about it and taking the time to read it. Life only has so many minutes in it. So I appreciate that you took the time to read Dirtbag. Um, there's, There's so many different answers to the question you just asked. So I'll try to keep it brief. But the opening line, my parents were married when they had me just to different people is an opening line that I've been using for most of my life. I remember saying that in high school, maybe even middle school. So that's a story that I've, you know, that's a line I've been using to start a story for a very long time. Sometimes almost using it as a deflection because it sounds, it's, it's both like, ooh, but a little mm-hmm. tantalizing, but also I could just let them bounce off of it. Um, another way to look at this is that Around the age of 23, I was starting to recognize that my childhood had been unique. I was starting to recognize all the different ways that what I kind of thought was normal maybe wasn't. And so that's definitely when I first started thinking about the idea of trying to get some of these stories down and onto paper. But I didn't really know how to write very well. So then it took me a little while to figure that out. And so in in earnest, I probably started writing these stories when I was 35. And I'm 39 now. And so so at that point, some of these essays had already been published, but the idea of this book, I really, I sold the idea of the book in 2018. And then the book became something completely different than what I sold. And that was through writing it. And that, that started in earnest, you know, around that time. And that's how the book came to be. So the answer to the question is I've been working on this book for 30 years, or <laughs> I've been working on this book for, you know, four, two, it's, it's, it's somewhere in there. Well, it's interesting because you have kind of a varied background. You have a kid's book, right? How to be a pirate. You have a couple of nonfiction books. You've done a lot of journalism. Um, You're jumping genres, which I love. And uh, I just want to hear more about that. Like why a memoir? Why not a novel or why this or that? Well, I think it is based, I've always been drawn to nonfiction. I, and, and just for the record, as a reader, I love everything. Genre really doesn't matter to me. I love fiction. I love nonfiction. I love all different types of fiction and all different types of nonfiction. But I've always been drawn personally to nonfiction 
I think because I have a background that's very similar to a lot of different writers uh, who, who've come up, but those first two books you mentioned, the nonfiction books, they're both tattoo books mm-hmm. and they're not photograph books. Uh, Wendy McNaughton actually redraws the artwork of the tattoo artists on the people that we interview. Mm-hmm. And so it's very much art representing art. But what I'm doing there is I'm recording somebody else's story. And then I'm editing it and I'm of course letting them look at it again and making sure that they agree with it. But that's truly my background. I didn't go to school for writing. I didn't get an MFA and I understand people that do, God bless them, that's incredible. But for myself, I really come out of this, what I would call a background in bar storytelling, which is the reason that I did those tattoo books is because I used to work at a bar and we'd just sit around asking, oh, what's the story behind that tattoo? What's the story behind that tattoo? So I love that. And, and the person that's the best example of this is Mark Twain. Uh, Mark Twain is a writer who very much got his start. And I, not it's, it's something I didn't learn until not that long ago, which a lot of his early stuff was he would literally buy drinks or even pay for people to tell him their most outlandish stories. And then he'd just type it up, change the names and, and call it a day. <laughs> so I, I love stories that are based in real life. It's just something I've always been drawn to. And those are the stories I'm interested in telling. And hmm. in, in the book, you say early on, you say the first line about the first line, you said you knew it would be a good first line because of all the reading you did as a kid. That's exactly right. My parents struggled in a lot of different ways, but one way that they were incredible is from a very early on, I'm sorry, from a very early age, I was surrounded by books. Books were so important to my parents and education was so important to my parents. So they instilled in me a love of literature. They instilled in me, along with my Catholicism, to be honest, in my mind, those things go hand in hand. And of course, you know, there's the Bible, there's the romance that can be found in Catholicism. There's a book at its core. That's all true. But in my mind, as much as they made me love the Catholic church as a child, they made me love books. So because of that, constantly reading, of course, I start to realize stories are a way to make sense of my own life. And so I start doing that at a very young age, long before, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's some really bad middle school poetry out there somewhere that I hope never sees the light of day. But for the most part, it's not like I, had, I, didn't, I didn't think I was going to be a writer. It's just that's my brain was constantly figuring out where the story was in whatever was happening to me. So from a very early age, when I, when I learned that my parents had been married, but to different people when I was conceived and when I was born, I realized, wait, that is, that's a little something. There's, there's, there's a shine to that. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um, there's so much in the book that is interesting to me. I like the talk about your tattoos and you talk about your St. Jude tattoo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's um, when I was 12, maybe even earlier. I can't, when I think around the age of 12, it might've been earlier. My mom bought me my first St. Jude tattoo, which I, in, in a way was very much a mother's prayer. <laughs> she and my dad were starting to maybe figure things out at that moment, but I was starting to become more and more reckless. And St. Jude very famously is the patron saint of lost cause. I'm sorry, is the patron saint of lost causes and desperate cases. Mm-hmm. And so, I wore this medallion. It will come as no surprise that especially somebody that bounces around a lot 
is kind of a little bit absent-minded from time to time, I lose things constantly. So I'd wear it and then I'd lose it. And then I'd go to a church and I'd get a new one and I'd wear it and I'd lose it and I'd go to church and get a new one. So I now have it, it's right here, it's, it's tattooed on me and that way I can never lose it. The joke I make when I tell that story is, seems a little young. Seems like she was calling it a little early. You can't call a 12 year old a lost cause. You know, there's, there's still time for me to develop. That's the joke I tell. <laughs> But the understanding I want to have for my mom in that moment is I think she was aware that things had gone off the rails and she wanted to do her best to maybe get it back on mm -hmm. and to watch me start to act out in the ways that I was acting. I think that was a real, a real prayer she was saying when she gave that. She really did hope that like as somebody who maybe had this like really difficult childhood, I was going to turn out okay. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it, it lately, or maybe not lately, maybe for a long time, it's been pretty unpopular to talk any, to say anything positive about Catholicism. <laughs> and even though you're no longer practicing Catholic, as you say in the book, you're not bitter or negative about the religion, which I appreciated so much. I, Can you say a bit more about that? Absolutely. The core of Catholicism to me, to talk about religion is a complicated thing, of course. Mm -hmm. Organized religion especially can get into some interesting areas. But for me, the core of Catholicism is forgiveness. And I think forgiveness, and when I say forgiveness, I don't just mean, hey, I'm sorry. I mean, true conversations. I mean, a deep understanding of one another and coming to terms with what's happened and letting go or accepting an apology, like true forgiveness is fundamental to life for me. We can set Catholicism aside. Forgiveness is a core tenant for me, but we can't set Catholicism aside because where did I learn that core tenant? Where did I come to respect forgiveness in that way? It was through the Catholic church hmm. and especially through the Catholic worker, which is something that I love highlighting. It started by Dorothy Day. Uh, they help the unhoused, they help my family very much, but they also, they like are people who take the Bible and I think take the best lessons from it. Here are people who want to feed the hungry, who want to take the clothes off of themselves to help those that don't have clothes, that want to help shelter those who don't have shelter. So Catholic workers, especially for me, basically a socialist Catholic sect could be a way to put it, is something that's so, so meaningful to me. And Here's where I get to very easily then say, you know, as opposed to the opulent Vatican City centered Catholicism. But here's the thing, and it's something my father is very quick to remind me. The Catholic Church is one of the largest, uh, you know, basically uh, charity organizations in the world. Even that, you know, as much as I'm like, oh, the Vatican, they have. Yeah, no, they still it's a helping organization that has done a lot of good. But just like any large institution, just like any large industry, in a way to put it, it also has a lot of issues. When you get that big, you're going to have a lot of issues. And so the Catholic essay for me in this book, I want to accept and highlight and celebrate even the things that Catholicism taught me that I still carry with me, while also not turning away from some of the hardships that have also happened. Yeah. And you were involved, um, you were a part of the Catholic worker community for quite a while. 
yeah, so my parents were married when they had me just to different people. Uh, but that meant uh, that they found themselves when basically my mother made the decision that she was going to have me. Um, and she and my father had not quite figured out a lot of things, but long story short, they both found themselves unhoused, no place to go, family support lacking. And so they found themselves joining the Catholic worker community. And they were, I, we lived on Tremont Street, we lived in, on Dartmouth Street, there was the uh, soup kitchen, Haley House, and eventually we make our way to John Larry House, which is like a halfway home kind of low income apartments to help unhoused people get back on their feet and it's run by the Catholic worker. But what I kind of like to say when I talk about my parents, it's almost like a hair club for men situation. They're like, not only am I like, so they, they were benefiting from the housing, from the structure and, and actually both eventually got jobs within the Catholic community. Um, and that all happened because of the Catholic worker. But then they were also huge advocates of the good work that was happening. So they quickly flipped from people that were, were in need and, and still were in need, but they then donated their time. That was such a big part of the mission for them. So they, they saw, you know, they did eventually get this apartment in John Larry house. And because of that, we were still going back to the soup kitchen to, to volunteer time. And it made for a wildly exciting unique and interesting childhood. It, there's some of my happiest memories were spent mm -hmm. at Haley House on, on Dartmouth Street in Boston. That's interesting. Yeah, that, it's, that's interesting. I don't know what I was reading or who I was talking to, but there was someone who was homeless for a bit and they said some of their best memories were camping in the car. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like they, they didn't look at it that way. They were little kids. Um, when you're a child, you're not aware that what's happening might be difficult. Mm -hmm. And you're not, you're definitely not aware that maybe that's not how other children are living. So when I was in that community, which was a rich, vibrant community, I think there was a part of me that was like, oh yeah, everyone just has like 30 adults bouncing around them all the time. And in my case, I was just like constantly trying to like pepper them with questions and, you know, some people were very lovely and kind. A few folks were a little bit like, get out of here, kid. I got stuff to do. But it made for a wonderful child. Hmm. So, I mean, you're, you have a gregarious personality. Do, were you born that way or did it come from living with all these people and just, you know, getting into the community of people around you? Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, it's a wonderful question. <laughs> I would argue uh, this it's, you know, nature versus nurture, right? What I would argue is I think maybe I was already leading that way, <laughs> but then yes, the way that I was raised really instilled that. And it's one of the earliest jokes I can remember my half brother making. I think my dad used to make it too, especially in those early years, which was like, Isaac could make friends with a telephone pole. <laughs> Isaac would make friends with a lamp, you know? <laughs> and that's a hundred percent. It was very much encouraged by being in the Catholic work. But then what I would say, you know, things, things do change. Uh, as you know, from reading the book after age eight, things become a lot more difficult. And that's where a flip, I only bring that up. I'm not trying to get too far ahead here, but the, the flip there, I think is very important because then being gregarious almost becomes this tool that I'm able to use. And I end up in boarding school, uh, as a way to blend in, hmm. I'm able to rely on it almost as a crutch. Again, that same thinking I had about, oh, I can make sense of my own life through stories. 
And I knew that by being interested in other people's stories, that that was a way to, to, to make sure that I was in a way joining a community, being protected, was going to be safe. And that's something that I relied on for a very long time. It's interesting. Did you have an outline for the book? Oh, great question. Yeah, let's talk. That's right, writing, right? Let's talk, let's talk. Um, oh, not to act like, like, cause that's such an easy question in one way, but here's, here's what I'll say. I think I've been outlining this book in my head for a very long time. But when I sold this book, it was a very different book. The, the thing that I sold was an idea of like a bunch of disparate essays. It was not gonna be so focused on my childhood. It was gonna be like touching on my childhood a little bit, but I was gonna be tackling like pop culture things and like kind of looking at myself through them, but like not really. And when I sat down to write those essays, I kept, I kept making reference to my childhood to the point where I was like, wait, let's be honest about what you maybe really have to write here. And at that point is when I came the closest to finding an outline, which is I knew that I wanted to open with the stories that I was told about my childhood. And I knew I wanted to close with the story that was my vision of what happened during my childhood. And then finding the through lines in between. Um, what was helpful was I'd already published a few of the essays that are in the collection. So when I was looking at that, that's like a very sparse outline, right? But then I was able to, almost like setting up a tent, you know, like I was able to put, all right, this essay's already been published. What does it feel like here? All right, that pulls up, that part of the tent's up. All right, what does it feel like here? All right, that pulls up. And then that's when I would see, oh, okay, this part of the tent is still dipping. We need something like, what are we not talking about here? And through looking at the other essays that had already been published and what they were holding up, I was also, it was quick to, the church essay is a great example. I make reference to my Catholic upbringing in other essays, but I realized I hadn't really tackled it. Okay, boom, that becomes a big tentpole. And that's truly how I found the form and the, and the arc of it, which is to say, I outlined a little bit, but a lot of it was discovered on the page. So what happened then to the, I, I'm guessing you sold it with a proposal? Yeah, oh, oh yeah, I, this is, I mean, you're, th this is exactly the podcast, right? To talk about this because I haven't really talked about this before. Yes. I got very, very lucky. My children's book, How to Be a Pirate is with Bloomsbury. Mm -hmm. My two tattoo books before that are also with Bloomsbury. I've worked with a couple of editors there, Sarah Shumway, who's incredible in the children's department, but Nancy Miller is somebody that I've known at this point for a decade. She's my editor. Because of that, I was lucky in that I didn't, write a full proposal. I really wrote like a two page, here's mm. the idea. But like I said, I'd already published a few of the essays I was thinking about putting in here. And the, the best example of it is the Hold Steady essay. Here's an essay that's about a band. It's about Craig Finn as a music writer. It gets into my own life. It opens with some memories of mine, but it's also about them. My idea was like, I would have something like that about Star Wars. I would have, you know, that was my pitch. It'd be tackling masculinity. It'd be looking at pop culture things. We'd get into my own stuff just a little bit. And so that's, it was a two page proposal. I can't remember what the other like pop culture subjects were, but that's what I sold. It's only when I sat down to write those essays. And like I said, very quickly, I'd be like, all right, well, why is Star Wars important to me? All right, well, my father taped, we didn't have a TV growing up, but at one point, 
he taped it off of the television when it was showing at some point and there was this beat up VCR and he would later show it to me and half the commercials were in there and oh now oh let's unpack some things about my dad and then all of a sudden next thing you know Star Wars is in the rear view mirror and I'm really getting into things that are important and that's when I realized no this is going to be a lot more about my childhood than I thought it was going to be and that's a beautiful moment for me because for so long I said I was never going to write about my childhood that was and that's what I think that's something we can maybe all relate to we keep saying no, that's already been done. That's not for me. I don't need to do that. It's a way of setting up blocks against what we maybe actually really do want to do. And of course, a million stories of people's childhoods have been told. But if we just stop, like, you know, every story has been, you have, it's about you. That's what makes it unique. Your voice, your writing, your stories. And so when I got brave enough to actually tackle that, I wrote a bunch of it. And that's when I then sent that to my editor. And I said, Here's what I have. It's nothing like what we sold you. If you want to pull the deal, I understand. Or let me know if I should keep going. And luckily enough, Nancy Miller not only said keep going, this was during the pandemic. I think she was a little worried about me. My hair was getting long, my beard was getting long. She also was like, I'm going to call you once a week and we can talk about what you're working on, mm-hmm. which was such an incredible moment of support. Yeah. I'd love to hear you read from Dirtbag, Massachusetts. I would love to. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think given that we're touching on Catholicism, Mm -hmm. I'm going to start with the opening of the Forgive Me essay. Cool. The confessional booth felt like every other confessional booth I'd ever been in. The wood of the bench was so dark and uniformly grained that it looked fake and the once plush cushion atop it was now dingy and flat. Between me and the priest was a metal lattice that transformed people into murky, anonymous silhouettes. What did her hair smell like? I didn't like not being able to see the priest, maybe because he was more fearsome as a disembodied voice, more powerful, which is to say that maybe what I didn't like was being put in the position of a supplicant. But at least there was a barrier between us. Son, I was 12 and at a church in Boston with my parents. Though we had moved to rural Massachusetts a few years earlier, the three of us still returned to the city now and then to visit our friends at the Catholic Worker. In so many ways, my family had barely survived the move. My parents had hoped that living in the country would bring us safe, I'm sorry, would bring us space, peace, safety, closeness. Instead, what we got was loneliness, depression, anger, disconnection. But we stuck it out, or they did. As a child, I didn't really have much of a choice. But after those terrible first years, my parents were getting better. My mother no longer so despairing. My father no longer ragingly loud or frighteningly silent. Meanwhile, I got worse. So at the beginning of the confession, I told the priest about breaking into houses to raid liquor cabinets, lifting bottles from package stores and cigarettes from grocery stores, trading bottles and cigarettes for weed and mushrooms. My parents were sober, my father a recovering alcoholic and my mother choosing to join him in his sobriety. There were no bottles, 
um, <clears throat> sorry, there were no bottles to steal in our home. I confessed to sneaking out of the house and riding in the backs of trucks as my older friends pushed the pedal into the floor and whipped around back roads, my body almost bouncing out into the night. I did not trust my parents. So I thought it only fair that I was worthy of their distrust as well. The priest nodded and listened and let my confessions crash against him and then wash away until I mentioned Ashley. Here, the looming silhouette straightened. Go on, the priest said. No, I did not want to confess that Ashley and I, I'm sorry. No, I did not want to confess what Ashley and I had done recently in a forest behind a friend's house in the rural hills of Massachusetts. However, I was pretty sure that not wanting to confess something meant that you really should. And after boring him with all the exploits I'd been vaguely proud ashamed of, I was glad to finally have the priest's full attention. Although there was already something too avid and alert about his ear. Mm, thank and you so much. Yeah, yeah, that's a powerful chapter. Um, wow, I'm glad you read from that. I, you know, as you were reading, I was thinking and wondering if in your writing, do you read your stuff aloud? Because your sentences have a rhythm. And I know you're involved with music as well, but do you, are you reading aloud? As, as 100 percent. I'm a I'm a huge huge fan and you know let's be honest Stephen King says it in his incredible memoir on writing it's a great piece of advice if, if that's what you're open to I really do believe in reading my work out loud it helps me catch echoes I won't lie even reading that out loud and that's from the published book there's a part of me that was like oh you did use that word about seven paragraphs back and you know obviously you can tinker with it forever so down that path lies madness but I love reading out loud because it gives me a familiarity with the work and it's so easy to catch those little mistakes or echoes that you have. Um, the other thing I'll say, and this is just truly getting into the process craft work, sometimes I will also just record myself talking. Mm. And that's, that's the God's honest truth because sometimes I love writing longhand. Let's start there. If I'm looking at an empty blank Word document on my computer, I will just freak out. I'll become overwhelmed. And then as I start to write, I'll, I'll see, oh, that sentence is wrong. That sentence is wrong. And so uh, all of a sudden, two hours have gone by and I've gotten half a paragraph because I'm so busy trying to figure out making it perfect. But for me, writing longhand, okay, I can fix my grammar mistakes later. I can fix my spelling mistakes later. There's a forward momentum. There's a propulsion. And so I love writing with pen and paper because you know you don't have to sit there and really feel like it's all finalized. Whereas I feel like a word document looks very like proper to me, but to move past even writing longhand, sometimes I will hit record on my iPhone and I will just talk hmm. and transcription transcribing in general is like a huge pain. So don't get me wrong. It's right. I, I, so that's what, that's what almost reigns me in a little bit. Like I don't talk to extreme lengths because I know I'm the person that's also going to have to type it all up. But especially if I've hit a moment in writing longhand where I don't know where to go next or I want to explore some things, I'll hit record and I'll just kind of talk some things out and then I'll go back and listen to it. And that's where I'll find, oh, hang on, that's interesting. And of course, if you write it down the way you spoke it, it does not read well at all. But then by reading it out loud, I slowly figure it out. And then 
I kind of bang on the sentences and they get in the proper shape. When you're talking, talking to your iPhone, are you thinking of an audience? Are you talking to somebody? Or, oh, that's, oh, that's a or is it just question. a note? Is it just sort of like something you want to remember or? Yeah, like no, I, it's, it's very much the latter. I think that's so wonderful. Um, when I'm rereading, I am thinking about the reader. I'm thinking about an imagined audience, 100%. If I'm rereading a piece out loud, like we we're just talking about. But if I'm starting with just the note, I'm doing the latter. I'm doing what you just said. It's almost a note for myself. Mm -hmm. Almost like, hey, Isaac, don't forget to pick up milk. Oh, and by the way, do you remember that one time when you were giving a confession and like, I'll talk it out like that and mm -hmm. it will get me into a scene or into a moment that I haven't thought about otherwise. You, you mentioned um, tinkering, like, you know, reading, you know, it's a finished book and yet you're going, well, you know, I could have, <laughs> you know, left that word out. Like, when do you stop tinkering? Do you ever stop tinkering? When is it done? Oh, that, I mean, it's so funny because so much of writing is not having enough words. So much of writing is just looking at that word document and recognizing, oh, I have so many more words that I need to put in. But then as you work on your book and you work on your book and you work on your book, eventually that starts to tip. And all of a sudden you're in this other place where you're like, okay, I have enough, I call it play. There are enough words down on the page, but now it's about finding the form. All right, oh, then you start to find the form. That's when it gets into this little like, oh, but what if, what if the form just had a little thing here, a little thing that that's when you get into the real nitty gritty and some beautiful lines, some beautiful moments happen when you're at that stage. So it's hard to let it go. And so when do you know it's time to put it down? For me, I got very lucky with this collection in that I because I was writing during this pandemic, it was a very difficult time. We were all having our hardships. My editor though was very good at pushing me to get to this final place. Because at one point, the ending essay for me is what makes everything else work. It's almost like the Rosetta Stone. It rewards the reader for making it to the last essay. And you find these things that make these other parts of the essay collection click into place. And everything I just said, is from my editor, not me, because I at one point was just like, no, come on, we're close, we're, come on, can't we just, I want, I so was, and that for me, I, it's because I was tired of it. And that was, I wasn't, I wasn't at the right place to put it down, it's just I wanted to put it down. But because my editor was so supportive and pushed me in these ways, I got that last, last essay in. And that's, but then she, she'd kind of given it back to me in this way. That's when I started being like, oh wait, I can fix this. What if we took this essay out? And what helps, sorry, it's a long-winded answer, but what helps is to have friends, an editor, all of the above, who can look at it for you and say, in my editor's case, hey, no, here you have to keep going. And then what happened as I started to get real obsessed with it again, I'm very lucky the author, John Ray, who's a close friend, took a look at the whole thing and said, hey man, your grammar's atrocious. I'm gonna fix all that, but I'm gonna take this uh, like this is done and you are kind of just like weirdly over baking your cake at this point. And so he kind of took it away. He made some fixes and then it was, it was done. And it helps to have that kind of community where you can share your work and they can give you that feedback of, I don't think it's there yet. Or yeah, it's time to put it down. Mm. How many revisions? Oh, 
I mean, so, I mean, so, <laughs> so many, I mean, cause that, but that's the beauty of an essay collection, right? Is that you can write each one and at least you get a little bit of that sense of this is done. And like I said, some were published before the book was published. So some of these essays had been already been re revised multiple times and then to make them fit into this book, I had to revise them again. Totally for this book, I would say I handed it in in December of 2021 and it was a mess. And then I would say probably four or five revisions just to get it to a place where it felt cohesive and good. And at that point, multiple friends, people I trusted looked at it. And so I would, I mean, 10, mm -hmm. and I want to be very clear. That's a low, like revisions in my head, revisions about, but I would say 10, just this. Did you leave anything out? Was there anything you wanted, you thought should be in the book that, you know, either your editor or a friend or you went, you know what, that doesn't belong here. Yeah. Um, I think there was a moment. So I, I have this life and the stories that you've read. And then around the age of mid twenties, I get involved with a literary community in San Francisco that leads to all these different aspects of my life where I get to work at McSweeney's. I helped start an online culture magazine called The Rumpus where Roxanne Gay and Cheryl Strait and all these incredible people were writing. Um, I eventually become involved with BuzzFeed and I'm the first books editor there and I get to talk about books on the internet and then I end up on the Today Show talking about books, which is the work of my life. Like books and community are so important to me and I love it so much. But when I realized that this, that this book, Dirtbag Massachusetts, was going to be about my childhood and kind of a more, like I'm so comfortable putting the spotlight on somebody else. Mm -hmm. But I realized the work of this book was going to be turning it inwards, turning it on myself. And so at one point I was in the early days being like, oh, and then I'll talk about how I got here and how I got there. And, how, and it's that eventually I got to this point of like, no, one, a reader doesn't need to know, like, it's going to be a boring piece. Like a, a reader wants to see struggle. They want to see even, I mean, even if it's a joyful essay, they want to see humanity on display. And I all of a sudden realized I was kind of trying to write a piece that was like, but look at all this good stuff I've done. Well, no, that's all right. That work can stand on its own. I don't need to write about that. That can just exist. And I think the book is all the better for having left that behind. All that out. Yeah, um, earlier, well, at the beginning of our talk, we talked about your first line and how you knew it would be a great first line because of all the reading you did. I want to talk about the ending because um, it ends with you talking about wanting to forgive your parents. Mm -hmm. And so talk about the ending because we've also talked about forgiveness, right? Mm -hmm. That that's sort of a tenant. That, that you believe in and that is important in life. The ending. So, you know, endings are hard. Endings are really hard. I think of in, in all genres, endings are really difficult. In a memoir, what do you wanna leave a reader with? I mean, like what should the reader take away? Because it's not a, you know, you didn't tie things up 
just so neatly that we go, okay, everything is solved. Everything is, is done. I mean, it's, a, it's continuing. This writer's life is going to continue and he's going to continue doing what he's doing. What do you, what do you think the reader should be left with after reading your book? And is that a concern or is that up to the reader? Yeah, no, listen, I, I just want to say that's such a caring and thoughtful question. And I, one, I appreciate you connecting with the book, reading the book, taking the time again, but just like to have somebody recognize in a way what I was trying to do there, I so deeply appreciate it because you're absolutely right. I didn't want to put a perfect bow on this. I've read a lot of memoirs, some of them that I care about very, very deeply, but it's like, and then I quit drinking or, and then we all lived happily ever after, you know? And I, that's not life. That's just not life. I knew for, I knew I was going to hand in this collection. And even the day that my editor was like, and we're done, we're locked. Congrats. It's going to be a book. I would still stub my toe or walk outside and get yelled at. Cause my dad, my dog was being overactive. Like, you know, like who knows? Like it was just, there was going to be moments of, of hardship. Life continues. That's what life does. Life continues um, until you, it doesn't. But <laughs> I, I wanted to try and capture that. And it wasn't until I had a conversation with my therapist that I really figured it out. And I, I, I'm not going to try and give too much away, but I think you can attest to the fact that you have to read the whole thing to even get what I'm talking about right here. But those last three lines, those last very short three lines, that I had. That I actually have, that's, that's part of how I write as well. I usually know my beginning and I usually know my end. And it's about trying to figure out how to connect those two moments. But, Wait, oh, go ahead. Okay. Well, but in therapy, I basically shared because what those three lines originally, not the book that you have now, but in my mind was going to be about forgiveness, straight up, just forgiveness. And it was my therapist who pointed out Isaac, how can you forgive your parents when you haven't even had conversations with them about all of this? And that's when so many different things clicked for me. That's when I knew, okay, this is an ending that is supposed to be ongoing. This is an ending and not just about me and trying to forgive them, but about me trying to even get the guts to talk to them about this stuff. And that's when I realized, oh, this is a piece that is not going to be a perfect bow or even a semblance of a perfect bow. This is going to be like, hang on, I'm going to finish writing this. And then maybe with the help of this book, this book is a tool. I'm going to go start conversations with my parents that I haven't been brave enough to have. So the reader, for me, I hope, is taking away how important it is, of course, to like grapple with your own issues, but then also to recognize like, it's not just about, for me a long time, forgiveness meant, oh, I forgive you, rear view mirror. It's like, no, to get to that place of forgiveness, a lot of communicating has to happen. So that's what I hope. Mm. So is that, has that always been your process to know the beginning and the ending? Yeah. Of yeah. I, I, and I'm telling you like, that's not, it wasn't learned. It wasn't less, just nine times out of 10, I've got a good, I mean, it'd be interesting. It'd be like a fun little, task but for me to go and look at the first line and the last line of all the essays because i guarantee you 
most of these, I knew where I wanted to start. I knew where I wanted to end. And it's about figuring out the in-between. And does that help? That must help you avoid huge blocks, right? Huge, you know, hitting the wall going, what now? You know, if you know where your ending is, at least you have somewhere to go. Exactly. And that's why it's so helpful. And I want to be very clear, just like, don't forget, I sold this book and it ended up being something totally different. So the ending doesn't actually have to be where you get to, you know, Mm -hmm. but it helps like, okay, I've got it. Like, it's just like taking a trip anywhere. Okay. I know where I'm going to end up. And then you can start your travel. And guess what? You might stop earlier. You might go further. You might end up somewhere totally different than you thought you would. But it gives you the confidence to walk out the front door if you think you know where you're going, you know? And then you'll find different things along the way. But yeah, for me, knowing where I'm starting, knowing where I'm ending is very important. That said, sometimes I don't always end where I think I'm going to end. Right, but you have the ending, the possible ending. So... I've been wanting to ask you about it, um, you know, the title, Dirtbag Massachusetts, a confessional, not a memoir, Mm -hmm. but a confessional. Talk about the title. Okay, so I got, there's three different things here. One, (laughs) Dirtbag Massachusetts, yes, and I apologize, I'm long-winded. But (laughs) Dirtbag Massachusetts comes from, so I lived in town, I lived in a lot of different places, but the main town was Athol, Massachusetts which many people in Massachusetts would call asshole Massachusetts. (laughs) Turns out you can't call a book asshole Massachusetts. They also would call us rat hole Massachusetts. There were other options, but I made that asshole Massachusetts joke to my friend, Jason Diamond, who's a wonderful writer in his own right. And he didn't even miss a beat. He just went, you should call it dirtbag Massachusetts. Mm. And I'm telling, I'm telling the title's so good. And this is the, this is going to be my cross to bear for a long time, which is everyone's like, what a great title. And I have to be like, well, Jason Diamond, it's not, it's not mine. Jason Diamond thought of it. Um, so that is like, but like the, it was, the second he said it, I knew that it captured the essence of what I was trying to do. And then a confessional was something I thought of because they were going to call it a memoir and essays. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big fan of that genre in general. But I was looking at it and I was like, hey, what if we just call it Dirtbag Mass? Like, let's not, like, I, I think just through how I've come up in the books world, I like, I'm like, we don't need to define everything. I, don't get me wrong. If you run an independent bookstore, I get it. You got to know where to put the books. But in general, I'm like, we don't have to find. And they're like, no, we got to call it something. And I thought, I won't lie. When I had the thought, I thought my editor was going to be like, no way too cheesy. <laughs> but then I said, what about a confessional, which of course is a play on the actual confessional booth as a Catholic, but also confess. <sighs> One, she loved the idea, but two, what, how I, cause I did it when I initially thought of it, I kind of thought it was cheesy, but how I made my peace with it was when I recognized what we actually just talked about in the section before this, which is, this is going to be essays of things I don't, everything I talk about in this book are things that I don't usually talk to people about. This mm-hmm. is not an essay collection about, oh, well, here's what it's like to do the Today Show. Here's what it was like to work here or there or the other place. I have those conversations. I'm a pretty public out loud guy, gregarious to use the word music. <laughs> but these were the things that I kept a little tighter to my chest. And I was like, okay, I am actually sharing something with the reader. So 
I made my peace with it. <laughs> yeah, no, I like that. I kept coming back to it going a confessional. All right. Yeah, yeah. So in closing, I wonder if you have any advice for the people listening um, or maybe something that was told to you that has stayed with you um, through your writing life um, that, that you want to share with uh, listeners. I apologize for being so long-winded. Stick with me. I it. love long-winded. Okay, great. Because <laughs> you're about to get it. So listen, I was raised reading. I love books. I love reading so, so much. It's one of the things my parents instilled in me. But I truly thought people that knew how to write had a gift from God. And let's be honest, I was also raised like at a library. Like most of what I was reading was a lot of like older dead white men. That's just the God's honest truth. As I come up, I'm, I get to boarding school, I get to actually go to college, which I never thought I was gonna do. But even then, I'm more reading my own stuff than actually paying attention to what's being taught me in class. I make my way to San Francisco, I'm 23 years old. Contemporary fiction, contemporary literature, contemporary books in general, just wasn't something that was on my radar in a very big way. When I'm in San Francisco, a friend points out that there's a place that has a quote unquote, book making and storytelling workshop. I walk in because I love stories. I love books. I'm intrigued. It becomes very clear to me that this is a place for children. And what is happening is it's a volunteer organization training meeting for adults to work with kids to help them with their stories and bookmaking. And all of a sudden I'm like, well, I was here to, uh, but I, you can't walk out. You look like a jerk. You can't walk out. Then you're just being a jerk. So I stuck around a volunteer, but it was 826 Valencia, which is a creative writing nonprofit. They have locations all throughout the country. It's started by Dave Eggers, his wife, Enda La Vida, McSweeney's. Anyways, I give you all that background to get to this moment, which is around that room that I was in, there were pieces of paper that were framed on the wall, covered in pencil marks, ink marks. Some of them were typed, some of them were handwritten. I raised my hand and I said, what are those? And the person giving the talk, just said, those are Dave's friends. I, I, at the time, I did not know who Dave was, but they were like, those are Dave's friends who have published books. And each of those pages is from a different manuscript that eventually became a book. And we have them up there covered in edits to show the children that if you find a teacher, if you find an editor, if you find a friend or somebody that you trust to give your story to, they will give you notes on it and give it back to you and it will improve it. You don't have to take all of them. Some of the edits will be bad. You'll know in your heart. Leave this aside, take this one in, make that change. Writing is a beautiful art form and it is very much a solitary act, but it can also be an act of community. At that moment, I was like 23 years old. I was writing, I was like, yeah, we should teach eight-year-olds this. But up until that moment, I truly thought like people, it was a gift from God. You lived in an ivory, ivory tower. You typed it perfectly. It got sent to New York. You're a millionaire. I now know that's not how books, books work, of course. <laughs> but that's when I realized it can be a craft. It can be something you work at. It can be something you get better at. And most importantly, it's something that if you find your community, they can help you along the way. They can make your stories better. So to that point, this is my one piece of advice. Find your people. Find your community, find the people that you trust with your stories who will help you improve them and make them better.
because to do it on your own is such a Herculean task. And that's not to say that there aren't perfect geniuses out there, or that's not to say if you wanna work on it just on your own, because you're not ready to share it yet, do that, follow your heart. Don't take, you know, this is just advice, like, like any edit, it's take what's <laughs> helpful, leave the rest. But for me, it was about finding community and people that would help me along the way. And that has been the best lesson I've, I've learned. That's great. That's great. I'm glad you're long-winded. And Isaac Fitzgerald, thank you so much for spending thank you. an hour away. Thank you so much, Barbara. I really appreciate you asking me on. That was Isaac Fitzgerald, author of Dirtbag, Massachusetts. The episode was produced on July 14th, 2022. Music and sound editing by Travis Barrett. And by the way, if you like the music that you hear on the show, visit Spotify, look up Just My Type for more typewriter music by Travis. Anyway, if you want to know more about this show or you'd like to reach out to my co-host Marie Stone or me, email me at penonfire at earthlink.net. Thank you for listening. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and this is Writers on Radio.